Welcome to the Get to Vet podcast, where we bridge the knowledge gaps in the military transition process so you can focus on what's ahead. Hey there, Get to Vet. Trevor Maxwell here with another episode. And with me, as always, is my partner in podcasting, Mike Riggs. And Good to be uh, back. Hell yeah. And uh, so we got a great guest today, Derek Griffin, um, and and this is an episode and a topic that we haven't really talked a whole lot about. And so um, appreciate you, Derek, for for coming on and and discussing this topic. I'll let you kind of talk a little bit about yourself and and tell a story, and then we'll go from there. Right on, man. You guys can hear me, okay? Yep. Yep. Okay. Cool. Yeah. Um... Yeah, so um uh, past three years have been pretty, you know, active, pretty chaotic at times, but uh a lot of eye-opening situations that have happened. So I I can I can touch on that and then uh, you know that'll probably be quite a bit of stuff if you guys wanted to, you know, hear about like hospital settings and you know, having cardiac arrests and complete amnesia and all kinds of stuff. But yeah, I'm uh I'm, I'm Derek Griffin. I joined the military in 2008 and, you know, went in, went into SF and, uh, did some pretty cool stuff, man. And then ended up getting out in 16 contracted for a while. And when, uh, when I was going up on my second contract for, um, uh, MTRC, uh, which is like a mobile, really cool program for SOCOM, really cool little deploy to Afghanistan, whatever, uh, all kinds of places. But we, uh, yeah, we found out that, that I had cancer on my screening going for a second deployment with them, which was going to be my last. And when I got back, they said, yeah, you're late stage three, uh, potentially stage four. And then from that moment on, you know, has been basically a, an uphill battle that is seemingly coming to an end at this point in time because uh, your body can only handle so much you know, so that's, uh, in a nutshell, that's, that's where it's at. Yeah. So I think the last, probably the last two, three episodes we recorded, I may have been complaining a little bit about, you know, the way, cause Trevor and I are both Navy UD guys and, and it's, I think it's common, you know, we work a lot with your community work a lot with NSW community and we see across the board where, you know, we spend our careers, you know, you, you everybody deploys hurt you know you see it on the mma guys are like always talking about how they're they fight hurt all the time we all deployed injured all the time at different varying degrees i mean i mean speaking for myself you know i would rather deploy injured than have somebody go in my place and get hurt or or killed you know so uh and we just continue to the the complaints i was talking about earlier and i was talking to army ud guy yesterday who had lost a leg um you know, we continue to push the envelope with ourselves, but I think the military medicine as a whole is somewhat complicit in the fact that they just patch us up and pat us on the ass and send us back out. And we're more than happy to do it because we love what we do, you know? So, um, and, and you're, you're definitely not the only one, you know, across our communities, the guys I know, I mean, the, the occupations we've had have taken a significant toll on, on folks, you know, I was when Trevor and those guys were supporting seventh group and I was a command master chief, I would go to seventh group and talk to some of those guys. And, 
they were losing senior, you know, relatively senior folks, but not, not in terms of age, but, you know, and we looked at it, was it the exposure to, you know, the lead and the primers, you know, that we were running through the kill house and not having it ventilated correctly. Um, you know, and then that, that kind of spun me off to, I was the command master chief of the UD school. You know, what are we doing when guys come in to baseline where they're at? You know, is it MRI? I think you guys in SF started doing full blood panels, I believe, at some point in the selection. I don't know if they're still doing it or, or they have moved it wherever. But, you know, I think from especially folks that have served in the career paths that we have served in, you got to, it's, it's no good to do an MRI on me at my 25, 26 year mark, there's no baseline to compare it to, but when we can do it early on in these folks, when they're, you know, in their late 18, you know, late teens, early twenties, you know, we can start seeing what the, these professions that we're asking folks to do and the long-term potential effects that they can have on their body, be it through blood MRIs, cognitive or whatever. So, I mean, it's awesome to have you come in here and give us firsthand experience of the path that you've taken. I'm glad to be here, man. It's like basically anything that I've, that I've done in the past three years, um, you know, if, if I can help somebody understand a little bit better about, you know, hospital settings and, you know, and on top of that, I suppose, like, you know, how to deal with extremely stressful situations when, uh, when shit really hits the fan, you know, I feel like that, that might be a good thing. And like you said, I mean, finding some baseline, you know, understanding, you know, what type of, uh, you know, condition people are in throughout their, their period of time in the military would be good because you've got the, what is it, the PACT Act that came out that they signed for uh, burn pits and stuff. And, yep. You know, that's, uh, that's, that's a big one, man. I, I had a, a panel done with, um, you know, genetics tests and everything. And it was 99, came back 99.9% uh, chance of being an environmental exposure to, you know, what they're noticing now from burn pits, from plastic. And, you know, I, I'm sure you guys have been around it a lot. I, I, I was around it a lot. And when you're in confined spaces and don't have the ability to have like good ventilation and you're literally just, you know, you're burning your own, you know, waste, you're burning your own plastic, everything. It, uh, it can really mess you up, man. And that's kind of the premise of the, the past three years of my life and what led to, you know, the terminal, uh, you know, terminal uh, diagnosis. So, yeah, man. Yeah. And I, I mean, I know I did that, you know, obviously all of anybody who's deployed to Iraq or Afghanistan, like, yes, we, we've all been exposed to burn pits and, and I think, you know, something else too, like, uh, because we talk about this all the time, like make sure that stuff gets documented into your record, get on the yep. burn pit registry, um, you know, bring those concerns up with medical when you get back from deployments and and get those screenings done because like yeah man i mean it's it's uh you know it's something you have to stay on top of right if you don't pay attention to any of that like you're never going to know what's happening and and you know so as far as like you know maybe you could walk us through the the last three years like you know from hey you know when i found out you know here's what happened like what kind of treatments did they recommend or you know, maybe what were some of your lessons learned as you kind of went through this whole process? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
you know, looking back, it's very blurry. Um, there's not a lot of memory from, um, you know, roughly to, you know, mid to late 2019 back probably five to six years because I, uh, you know, when they, when they found out I had cancer, they put me on chemo and it killed me for a little while. I had a cardiac arrest and, uh, completely wiped my brain. I couldn't talk or walk or anything. And, you know, I was just a vegetable. So I was able to pull out of that, but, um, you know, going through, you know, like looking at other teammates that I have, there's, you know, two guys that, uh, were on my team that are noticing some of the things that I noticed before all this happened. And I have to tell them like, you need to get a colonoscopy, dude, just, if you have to lie to get it, do it, whatever. But you never know when it's going to hit you. They misdiagnosed me for a while and it, you know, delayed everything for probably about six months, all treatments and everything. But I, um, you know, I had initially, I was healthy, you know, six foot, 210 pounds, 220 pounds, like doing all kinds of, you know, great exercises, you know, just like core strength and, you know, like basically uh, gearing up for the next phase of my life, which I wanted to either go FBI, which, you know, don't hate me for that. <laughs> don't. Don't take that out on me. Uh, but, you know, just join join a, a good organization. I, I know a few guys that wanted to bring me in. I was working with the MTRC program, all this stuff. And then, um, you know, came back from a year-long deployment with MTRC. And, um, you know, just sort of like, you know, reset for about maybe two or three months and said, I'm going to do another three months so that I can have enough money to go back and either, you know, go like FBI or, you know, get my MBA. And, uh, you know, the, the screening that I had before, I, like right before I deployed, um, they looked at my medical paperwork and said, well, we can't deploy you because your doctor is saying that you possibly have either an ulcer or a hemorrhoid. And uh, you need to get that fixed before, you know, we deploy you. So go, go take care of that, come back, and we'll send you out. And um, it was... Uh, bear with me. I, I I use a breathing machine a lot. And I'm not you know, on it right now, so I might have these little momentary pauses to, to no take a couple breaths. Take your time. Um, go, going back in time and, and thinking about it, you know, it's like uh, vaguely, vaguely remember some of this stuff, and the rest has been given to me. All all the info that happened from the people that were around me. But I went to um, you know to Tampa. And went down to SOCOM, did, did all the screenings. They said, you need to fix this. So then I come back to San Antonio and sit down and with uh, my primary care. And they said, uh, you know, we're going to do a colonoscopy, you know, just to make sure finally, as I had requested a colonoscopy for months. And, um, you know, they finally did it and they found a uh, four centimeter tumor uh, in, in my rectum, which is, you know, pretty, pretty big for that area. And, uh, you know, from there on, it was, you know, like, what are we going to do? Or is it going to be radiation? Is it going to be chemo? Like, can we, can we put you under the knife? So first course of action was to, um, uh, you know, essentially put you on chemo. And while you're doing that, we're going to hit you with radiation as well for a couple of weeks. And then we're going to surgically remove the rectum. We're going to take that out. You'll have a bag, an ostomy bag for a little while, and then we'll reverse it. And hopefully that'll get the cancer. Uh, right now, we're seeing that you're late stage three. 
so stage three B or C or whatever. And um, uh, from from there, uh, everything went downhill. And this is early to or like mid two thousand nineteen is when it started to really, you know, ramp up with uh, hospital visits and everything. And then in August of 2019 i started a chemo called uh, zelota and it's supposed to work really well with colorectal cancer patients and uh this is something interesting right here like uh, i've been through all the doctor's notes and everything from that time I, I went back and i was able to you know acquire all the conversations between the doctors and myself and i was having chest pain on the 25th of August in 2019, which was day five of me starting any type of chemo at all, which was Zelota. And uh, I had to go to the ER and I was having a lot of chest pain. I was telling the doctor, you know, my, my primary oncologist, hey, like, I feel like something's wrong. You know, I've never had any issues with my heart. I've never had chest pains like this. You know, I'm constantly winded. And they kind of just attributed that to, um, you know, to the chemo and stress. So on August 25th, I went to the ER. This is 2019 and uh, was up there for probably 10 hours. And they ran all the testing and said, uh, you know, you're okay, you're good. They on paper put that I, I had left asymptomatic, but I hadn't, my girlfriend at the time told me that they basically wanted me out of the ER. So, you know, it was just a situation in which they couldn't dial in exactly what was wrong so they just said basically you know get just go home you're fine talk to your doctor so i texted him he got back to me and this is all through the my portal so it's all documented uh in the, in the doctor's notes and he said continue treatment so i did and on august 27th uh my my girlfriend at the time uh and i had just finished uh you know take care of some business if you know what i mean and she goes to the bathroom comes back are you doing your taxes back, or <laughs> yeah <laughs> i put i put i put, I put her to work to work i was like amanda you're gonna be my damn accountant get in there oh, yeah. uh but now she um she came back from washing up and when uh when she came back into the room i was uh you know completely you know, just, I, I, I was dead already. I was just laying on the bed, uh, you know, no, no response or anything. And she thought I was joking. So she, uh, she kind of messed with me for a little while and, um, and then realized like, no, he's turning pink. Something's wrong. And so she tried doing CPR on the bed as she called the cops and they said, you got to pull him off the bed. She did that. Um, and then started CPR on me and, um, you know, that kind of, uh, I'm sorry, I'm just kind of thinking back to the video footage that I had from my camera system at the time, man, it's pretty wild, but she, um, she did her best. She did CPR for a couple of minutes before the, uh, EMT showed up to, to work on me and they hit me, I think like four times with, uh, with the paddles and a bunch of other drugs that they, you know, they give you, I think amiodarone, liquid amiodarone or whatever, but they took me out of the house, uh, completely dead, no heartbeat. And by the time I got to the hospital, they had, they had restarted my heart. But by that time I already had severe brain damage from the epoxia. So, uh, they monitored me in the first hospital for a little while. 
uh, probably about two days in a coma. And then, uh, but, you know, took me from there to you know, civilian hospital over to uh, Fort Sam, which is the Brook Army Medical Center Hospital here in San Antonio. Great hospital. Um, you know, a lot of a lot of tools in their in their tool bags. Uh, you know, but I went there still, basically a vegetable in a coma. Um, nobody really knew what to do, and uh, you know how this would turn out because of the extent of, 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 you know, the, the immediate, you know, reaction that they had was, you know, this guy's going to be a vegetable. I mean, he can't do anything that, that would bring me out of a coma and I'd, you know, start babbling. I would get uh, aggressive and they, uh, they'd have to put me back in the coma because, you know, it's like my, my brain just wasn't able to handle what was going on, I guess. Um, yeah. And that was, uh, you know, late August, uh, August, and then into early September, I was being treated, um, you know, basically with them just saying, like, there's not really much we can do about this. You know, we're gonna have to let it ride out and see if he starts getting a little bit better, which I did. Um, you know, off the bat, I started you know, um, using words like a child, you know, I could like barely barely talk. And, um, for about, I want to say a month, I was at, at uh, the BAMC. It's like kind of like a psych ward. They keep people in there that have severe brain injuries. So everybody's yelling, people are in comas, all that stuff. And when I come out and I actually start to realize that, you know, I'm alive, uh, you know, it became sort of like, you know, primal instinct and, you know, like all the training that we go through and, you know, like my bringing up as a, you know, from before the military, it's, you know, I got pretty violent. So put doctors in headlocks a couple of times, uh, escaped, well, tried to escape in the hospital a couple of times, almost made it once. I don't remember any of this, but, uh, you know, this is all while I'm coming out of a coma trying to you know, let my body heal. And, uh, well, as my body's trying to heal and it's not helping anything. So they put me back in a coma, bring me back out. And at some point I was able to start functioning at a higher level where I could respond to commands. I could walk on my own, um, you know, simple things like, you know, eating, I could use a spoon, whatever, um, you know, get, getting through all that. Uh, you know, with my family there at that point in time, you know, sitting with me and dealing with the hospital and the doctors for, you know, uh, about a month and a half, they, uh, they moved me over to the VA clinic, well, the VA hospital here, which is uh, Audie Murphy. And um, essentially, it was like, we can't do anything for you. And you're extremely violent. And, you know, like, you're literally like putting staff members in, in headlocks and running across the, you know, the field trying to escape and stuff. So they sent me to the VA. Um, they had a mediocre, in my opinion, program for any type of polytrauma rehabilitation. It was mainly, you know, them just putting people in little areas and trying to help them as much as they could. But, they, you know, there was no real 
like no real course of action for them in my situation. Um, but luckily, um, you know, I was, I was there for probably, I think about a month and a half, two months at Audie Murphy. And luckily the, uh, Green Beret Foundation, uh, heard that I was there and, you know, I'm, I'm friends with, uh, the director. Uh, we went through part of the Q course, Brett, uh, Brett Cooper, awesome guy. Uh, he heard that I was in there. So he came and said, I'm going to pull you out and put you in a, a different PA facility that works specifically with polytrauma uh, in situations like yours. So it took me there and um, it's a small facility, probably, you know, I'd say 25, 20 to 25 patients that are there. Some of them are um, not really even capable of feeding themselves. Uh, others are fully functional. You know, some of them are amputees that are trying to get better. Uh, but for my situation, they, uh, they really wanted to cater towards, uh, you know, rebuilding the, the parts of my brain that were damaged if they were able to, and they did a phenomenal job. And I, you know, give all the respect to the polytrauma clinic here in town, as well as the Green Beret Foundation for pulling me into that place. And they supercharged my, uh, my ability to, you know, to learn to, you know, name more than two animals to, you know, draw something to, you know, basically everything. And um, yeah, man. So after that was, you know, basically just trying to figure out what was happening because I wasn't notified that it, it's like, you know, you're, you're going to die soon. You're, you're stage four probably now. I didn't really understand it. Um, you know, my brain wasn't at the point at which I could comprehend what they were saying. So for me, it was just kind of like, yeah, whatever, it's not a big deal. Um, over time, which I'd spent probably a month at the P trap. I, uh, you know, I came to realize, you know, severity of the situation, which, you know, like you are stage four, that means that this is a problem and we need to address it like immediately. So, uh, got out of, got out of that place, you know, they, they released me and, uh, you know, I was probably at about 70 to 80% uh, capacity with my brain and, uh, I'm taking a breath here. Um, yeah, so they, they, they sent me back home and from that moment on, uh, which was right around, let's see, November, September, October, that was around, uh, October ish. Uh, I started treatment again, which was different types of chemotherapy, um, as well as surgery to re remove the rectum, put an ostomy bag on, and then, uh, continue with, uh, with my life while I waited to have it taken off because I didn't want to do both, you know, have the bag at the same time and do chemo. I didn't want to do that together. So that time period, you know, could have taken me that entire time period could have taken me from stage three to stage four. Um, tried a lot of different things on top of the chemotherapy, but that was the main driver of uh, everything that I was doing in my life was like, I need to survive. So no job, uh, couldn't work anyways, but you know, no job, basically just like go to the hospital, get chemo, come home, you know, you're torn apart for a few days because I was on three different types of chemotherapy all at once. And that was biweekly. So it was, it was pretty brutal. Um, and then, 
Sorry. This <laughs> give me one of those things, man. You guys are gonna have to walk me back in because I look now I'm like a squirrel. My brain is screwed. No, man. But, go, uh, go for it. Yeah, we uh, you know, we we went through a few cycles of different types of chemotherapies and um, you know, some of the other offline stuff that I was doing seemed to be working in a way that they had never seen. Uh, they took it to the cancer board for study and uh, you know, it was a holistic approach to um, you know, targeting the cancer, which was high, high dose vitamin C and doxycycline uh, and on top of the chemotherapy and worked very well with the oncologist. He was completely open to doing it and did his research. And, um, you know, we did that for about a, let's see, that was about a year and a half that we, you know, uh, worked together, did the chemo. I went to MD Anderson, Sugarland. There's multiple locations of MD Anderson, which is the cancer hospital, you know, one of the leading cancer hospitals, um, and um, went went there, drove to Houston like three hours uh, to sit down with a guy that uh, took 10 minutes to tell me that he couldn't do anything. There's nothing they can do for you. So we might be able to start removing, you know, parts of your lungs because the cancer by that time had spread to the lungs, probably the liver, as well as the adrenal glands. And he's like, we can start, you know, surgically removing parts of your body, but outside of that, you're screwed. So we... Uh, Came back home, continued treatment for another couple months until the chemo shut me down, and um, you know to the to the point at which I, I couldn't continue treatment. And age old, you know, saying from people who have been through this is, uh, you know, if the cancer doesn't kill you, the chemo does. And so, unfortunately for me, uh, you know, it was both at this point in time because. I was unable to continue with any type of traditional treatments. And um, yeah, man, like during that entire time period, you know, you have to live a little bit, you know, I wasn't completely out of it 24 seven. It, it was just, uh, you know, I still with, <clears throat> I was still with the girl, uh, you know, with my girlfriend that had saved me and, you know, like a lot of stress for everybody, my family, myself, you know, my girlfriend just, uh, you know, things that you would have never imagined happening, you know, and they start popping up and, and, and the amount of, you know, drama and stress that comes with, uh, you know, like basically everything. I mean, being diagnosed to the point at which, you know, you move through all of these treatments and they say, you know, well, you're fucked. We, uh, we can't do anything else for you. It's like, all right, man, like, well, then what's the next step? You just live your life, right? But for me, uh, that, that wasn't necessarily the case because a lot of things happened in the hospital between my family and my girlfriend that destabilized the entire, the entire family and my life at the same time, you know, because nobody could, my girlfriend at the time and uh, my family had never tried to, you know, fix what had happened and reconcile and shake hands. Because in the hospital, uh, a few times, my sister, uh, she's my older sister, she, uh, you know, she was trying to basically kick my girlfriend at the time, kick her out of the hospital, get her out of the picture. And, um, you know, she did her best to take care of me. But at the same time, that kind of set the stage for a lot of, 
a lot of drama and dealing with that, you know, emotionally and, and, uh, you know, psychologically, especially with all this stuff going on is it's taxing, you know, it breaks you down and, you know, mentally. And so, you know, go, go and I'm, I'm just kind of going back and forth here a little bit. They, um, they never fixed anything. I tried to juggle that I could stay with Amanda and, uh, you know, try and bring the family back together, but it, it didn't work. It just made things much, much worse. So had a mental breakdown, never really considered the fact that I had PTSD, always said I didn't, you know, and I mean, I've got, uh, you know, just about three years and about three and a half years in uh, combat settings. Uh, Two of those years were, you know, mildly active, six months on a team and Afghanistan was extremely active. And we did a lot of a lot of stuff that, uh, you know, my teammates and I talk about, you know, sometimes and it's, you know, things in the moment that you don't really think about because, you know, you come out, you're a pipe hitter, you know, you don't have to worry about anything like you're just going to do your job and be a badass Green Beret. You know, I'm not a pussy. And so you, you, you know, try to wrap your head around the fact that, like, no, you do have some, you know, enduring mental issues from from the things that you have done in the past that you never really paid attention to and didn't want to accept so i had a uh, a pretty bad episode that just blew up one night and with my uh, my girlfriend and i you know everything went red and my heart was you know, beating faster than it ever had. And like all of these things compiled right there on the spot all at once. And, uh, yeah, I don't know, man. I, I feel like when a person, you know, has such a large amount of stress and getting pulled in different directions, it tears you apart. So I ended up, um, talking to a psychiatrist uh, who is pretty good and she immediately put me on SSRIs. So I went, went with uh, Lexapro and Wellbutrin maxed out at the highest dose uh, as soon as we could, which was like probably two days after I had the breakdown. And um, I can tell you, man, like that shit doesn't work, man. It makes it a lot worse. Uh, you really got to, I don't know, man, you really got to think about the fact that, you know, some of these medications might not, they might, they might not be good for you. And there's a lot of studies coming out specifically with SSRIs and, you know, how it's not necessarily a a chemical imbalance in your brain. It could be something else. But at the time, you know, my psychiatrist just said, you need to keep taking this stuff. And my mental stability, emotional stability just got way worse. And, um, you know, I don't know, man. There were there were some times where, you know, I, I really did consider just ending it and just saying it's you know it's done, it's over. You know, I can't I can't take this anymore. Um, you know, there's no no other people that I can talk to. I'm isolated. My family's broken up. You know, my sister, you know, my nephew, my mom. Like, you know, we're not we're not good with each other. My girlfriend. Everything was just 
piling on. And, uh, you know, like I said, there are a few times where it was just, you know, I was just ready to end it, man. And legit, just say, fuck it. I've got enough heart medication here to kill an elephant. You know what I mean? And, um, you know, maybe I'll do that or something, but, you know, you, you have to rely on, you have to rely on, you know, certain, certain people that you are comfortable with and that can, you know, sometimes just listen, but I've got a really good support system with a lot of different friends and, you know, teammates with, you know, old army, regular army friends, uh, you know, just friends that I knew before the military. And I was able to kind of use them as a, you know, as a crutch to help me as I, as I figured things out. But, uh, you know, it's difficult, man. It's, you know, guys see things, you know, they see their buddies getting blown up and legs blown off and all kinds of stuff. And these guys have serious enduring PTSD. And, uh, you know, for me, it was like all of these things that came together that kind of triggered mine, but it can be really difficult to take a step back sometimes and, you know, try to see things the way they were before you became a person with this issue with, with PTSD, you know, with suicidal tendencies and all that. I mean, it's difficult to work through that fog to say like, you know, no, man, you, you know, like, that's not you, that it's things externally that happened that, you know, you don't have to necessarily live with 24 hours a day. You know, you can take a breather, take a step back and look at what's important. Look at the good things in life, you know, stuff like that. And when you're in a, a bad position like me, where it doesn't matter, you know, what day it is, what time it is, I always have that, you know, that, uh, you know, that understanding that like, I am going to die soon. It's a different perspective of life. And uh, I'm just kind of babbling at this point. I'm, I'm sorry, man. I got, I just I had to take some morphine before this. So bear with me here. Oh, it's all good. But, no, I, I yeah, man, it's, it. Oh, there's tons of lessons learned of what you're talking about, man. So you're you're not babbling. You're just uh, actually you're, you're putting out a lot of good stuff. I mean, you talk about. Well, first off, I have to put a disclosure. I hate the D part of the PTSD because I think the fact that when you go and do the things that we've done and you don't come back changed, I think that part makes you fucked up because if you if you come back and have some type of, you know, next time you hear. Uh, uh, a very, very loud noise and it kind of makes you go, Oh shit. Um, or, or whatever it may be, you know, uh, you hear a gunshot or something, or I don't know, you, you never, you, 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 anybody goes and does the things that we've done never comes back the same way. And I think, you know, I've thought about this a lot recently, especially about the, uh, like the compartmentalization thing. I think we, and this is just my you know, shithouse observation of the whole thing. But, um, you know, when we, we do the jobs that we do, uh, you know, I, I think you have to, we get really good at it. And I think the ones that do our jobs very well, um, you, you end up, you know, cause the shit we do is scary. It's plain simple. I mean, most of the other people out there that would look and see what we did for a career, there's no way in hell they would even think about it, but we love doing it. And whether it be jumping off a plane, going on a dive, you know, 
disarming a, a, a device, going into a, a, you know, going on target, something like that. We compartmentalize a lot of shit just in that act alone in order to go do what we need to do. So, and then by the time you end up with what looks like a container terminal down there, you know, at the port of Norfolk with all these different containers that we've put all this shit in, it takes an extremely, extremely long time to unpack that stuff. And I mean, to your point, I mean, you, you know, you get to the point sometimes where you just don't find enjoyment in shit anymore. You know, what, what makes you happy? Well, nothing really. And that's not, and I think it's common across our communities for folks to, to feel like that. And I think, you know, for, especially for like Trevor and I, we're in the Virginia beach area. So we still get to hang around and be the old wise asses and wise dudes that go to these, you know, functions and get to talk to folks. And, and there is therapy within doing that. There's therapy within, you know, doing the podcast that we do. I mean, I find we don't get, we don't, we make absolutely no money out off of this. And I'm glad we don't because there's no amount of money that anybody could pay me to not do this because it's just that valuable to me. So, um, I think the stuff you're putting out, man, is, is solid gold. So I really appreciate you uh, diving deep into that stuff. Yeah. That's I was, no problem, man. No you, problem. For, you forgot one, Mike, the, the NFL season. <laughs> true. Very true. I mean, if, if you don't understand the reference, that was the, that's on social media right now. Everybody's talking shit on Tom Brady because he, he compared an NFL season to a military deployment. To which oh, I replied, you know what? He's probably not wrong if you never left the fob. And uh, <laughs> yep. But yeah, I, you, yeah. You, lo- you love seeing that stuff, man, where it's like everybody compares compares to like military deployments and, you know, problems yeah. that military guys have. Like, my life is so terrible. Like, no, nah, man. <laughs> all, all the guys that got mad about it, like some of them, I'm probably, I'm looking at like, come on, dude, you went to Kuwait. Just, yeah. <laughs> the, I just like to talk shit. But so the, the PTSD thing, that's something that I wanted to hit on too, because, you know, Mike and I, uh, it was a guy, I didn't, I didn't know him very well, but, uh, you know, in the Navy EOD community, we lost, uh, you know, another guy that to suicide recently and that that stuff that pts uh like that's shit that necessarily doesn't affect you right now it's stuff that creeps up on you later like you know i i think about stuff like that and and you know i think back in iraq i did a post blast on a school like a suicide bomber hit a school and that was probably one of the worst fucking things i've ever seen in my life and at the time, it didn't bother me. But, you know, every once in a while, I, I think about that and, and seeing what I saw. And, you know, when I <laughs> it, it does so like that stuff I think about and, and it does, it gets upsetting. Like when you think like, my God, dude, like what if, what if that had happened at my kid's school or something like that, you know? Um, yep. it, it's it, it's it's and you never know what's going to. Uh, you know, trigger those kinds of responses to, yeah. So it's, it's, yeah, you don't need, like, I'm not saying you don't need to worry about it right after it happens, but it's after you're done after you don't. And I think this is another important thing too, that I've been very adamant about for myself and my own military transition is making sure that you have a very strong sense of purpose 
in your life and your career after the military, because that's, and that's, you know, one of the things that I love about doing this podcast and, you know, Mike and I have talked about this too. Like this is something that, that keeps us kind of, you know, on that, like, Hey, yeah, we have something to do here. Right. We, we have something that we're both, um, you know, we both have a passion for is sharing information and, and, you know, it's, it, it's just one thing that that i have to to kind of keep me you know focused on like hey yeah i got the podcast here and that's why you know that's why i'm really appreciative of 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 guys like you taking your time to come on here and and share their knowledge and experience because like guess what you know i hate to say it but but you're not the only guy who's having this issue and there's other people who are having it right now that hopefully one of them will will hear this or or, you know, people will have it. Um, you know, Mike and I, too, we know some some EOD guys that, you know, have all deployed to some of the same places that we have. And, and you know, a couple of guys right now are actually uh, fighting similar battles. And so, um, yeah, it just, you know, it makes me very appreciative of you, you know, sharing your time and, and knowledge with us. Um, no problem at all, man. That's basically all I've got at this point in time is just, you know, my experience in the past three years and the hope that, you know, when I, when I talk about this stuff, cause I have, you know, with my friends and former teammates that, um, you know, they go through, you know, some hard times and stuff. Like I had a buddy dog handler, um, you know, and he, he saw some pretty, pretty gnarly stuff that messed him up on his last deployment and messed him up really bad. And so like talking to him and just sort of like, you know, being on the same level and knowing that, you know, it's not just me, like, it's not just me that had a breakdown, like this dude had a breakdown and, you know, just talking about my experience with him. I mean, that, that right there helped me, you know, and, and him as well. So like, we're not alone. There's a lot of us that are, that are not right in the head. You know what I mean? Like guys that needed to come back and decompress in uh, a better way, I guess, you know, so that they could start working on themselves and they just never did or never had an opportunity. So this is, and I, and I, I appreciate you guys pulling me on. Yeah, I mean, if this helps anybody, if this helps even just one person, you know, if they can hear that I've, I've been through the gambit, I mean, you know, they, they can do the same thing, even though I'm at the end of life, that's not something that I can fix, but I do feel like a lot of the, you know, the mental issues that guys have, there, there's different ways to approach, you know, recuperating and, and, and fixing, you know, the issues that you have. So, you know, I've heard a lot about, I've heard a lot about the VA too, doing, um, you know, things like ketamine trials, MDMA, uh, psilocybin, like a lot of, a lot of good things are coming out from things like that, where you can, you can utilize these hopefully at some point. And, uh, you know, the VA hopefully does a good job of, of really ramping it up because every, everybody that I talk to you, like my, my buddy that, uh, you know, dog handler from my, my last team, you know, he was, he was pretty messed up and he's right now on the, uh, you know, the ketamine trials. And he said that it works really well. And then I see a lot of testimony from people that I don't know that are saying the, uh, psilocybin works phenomenal that, you know, they do it like once a month. And, um, you know, it's, it's really helping stabilize their, their psyche. So, you know, if we can start dialing that stuff in, I feel like it's, 
it's important, man, because you redeploy, you come back, and they basically slap you on the ass and tell you, like, no, you're good. You know, if uh, if you want to talk to somebody about something, go for it. We've got psychologists, but I don't think there's a massive amount of programs that really cater to people that need serious help. I don't know. Maybe maybe now. I mean, I've been out since 2016, so you know, when, I haven't really worked. Uh, good. Yeah, yeah. I was gonna say we actually uh, a guy that Mike and I both know is a retired EOD guy. He's in San Antonio too, and he. We did an episode with him where he talked about that, like the ketamine infusion uh, type stuff. And, uh, you know, he said, like, yeah, that was completely life changing. Um, yep. Yeah. And, and so that's that is good stuff. But that was something else I wanted to ask you about, like, as, as far as like dealing with the VA when you have an issue like that, because for, for a lot of guys who come back and they find themselves in that situation, like, you know, I must feel like, hey, it, it has to be a part of the equation. Like, even though I know we hear all these bad things about it all the time, but but it is a, a resource. And I think, you know, understanding how to use it and, and knowing like, hey, what are, what are some of the benefits that you can get from it if you can get them? Um, you know, how has your experience been dealing with them? It's pretty good, man. Uh, I mean, the VA... So when I was sent to Audie Murphy, it, you know, which is a VA hospital here in San Antonio, it was, you know, essentially like I was saying, Bamsi, it was a place where people had serious injuries, you know, like they're, um, you know, they're going to be spoon fed the rest of their life type thing. Some guys are just screaming all day. Um, but that, that was more of a, a place to go like sit and die. And I was not impressed at all. But as soon as I got pulled out of there from, you know, the Green Beret Foundation, um, you know, and they were able to get me into a polytrauma clinic that was much smaller and able to, you know, pay more attention. My experience with the VA was phenomenal. It was amazing. They supercharged it. Like I said, I wouldn't be here without the assistance of, of their specific program. And, um, <clears throat> and, uh, you know, from that moment on, I, you know, I, I regained a lot of faith in the VA. So, you know, I still, I still talk to them, you know, I got out of that clinic in uh, 2019, but I mean, I still am in constant communication with the, the directors and everything. And, you know, they, they do talk about things like the ketamine trials and stuff and, and how, and the, the psilocybin, which is supposed to be coming out pretty big. So yeah, my, my experience with VA ended very well. Uh, didn't, didn't start that way, but it did end on a very good note and I wouldn't be here without him. Well, that's, I mean, that's good. That's reassuring. Did you, um, like as far as your VA disability claim, did you make any adjustments to that? Cause obviously like, you know, we always talk about like when you're talking about VA ratings, there's your hundred percent, there's your hundred percent permanent and total. And then your hundred percent, like you can't do anything else. Um, you know, did you get somebody to help you go through that whole process? That was, uh, I, I was leaning on, uh, uh, the polytrauma clinic that I've been talking about. I, I kind of use them as, uh, you know, a pathway to, you know, find certain things that, uh, I wouldn't have been able to do on my own. So they, they really did help a lot. And then on top of that, you know, if, um, I'm sure you guys have, you know, similar, um, you know, organizations, but the Green Beret Foundation 
has been really good and they, you know, they, they, they understand what I'm going through. Uh, and a lot of us are going through, so they've got, uh, uh, you know, a few guys that work specifically with, uh, you know, the VA, they've got connections so that when you talk to them, cause I was at, I think I was at 40% when I got out for like, you know, whatever ears and, you know, some stuff that happened to my feet. But, uh, you know, after talking to them, they were able to immediately, you know, raise my, my rate up to a hundred percent. And I think it was hundred percent workable. And I, I wouldn't have been able to do that on my own. You know, I had an organization, I had backside support from people who cared and understood the process, which was the Green Beret Foundation, um, you know, VA guy, I guess that they have on hand and, uh, yeah, I mean, they're, they're able to help. So having, having people that are knowledgeable and how to navigate through the VA is extremely important. I mean, it is imperative that you, you know, at least try to utilize uh, some of these organizations. And I I can't like, you know, endorse or whatever, you know, any, any place that I haven't used like uh, Warrior's Heart, you know, stuff like that. But I can say that without the, the Green Beret Foundation and their help, navigating and also the PTRAF, the polytrauma clinic, I, I wouldn't, you know, I, I wouldn't have been able to do this on my own guaranteed. I'd probably still be at 40%, which, you know, that's not like a, a huge deal, but it's, you know, I'm, I'm dying now from a cancer that I got downrange. So it is nice to know that I do have that support network and that system of, uh, you know, people that are able to, able to either help me or, you know, hand walk me through or just take care of it for me. And, explain what I need to do to, to make the VA work for me, which is exactly what they did. Yeah. And, you know, I, I, I think about, you know, as, as you were kind of talking there, I'm, well, I'm sure I'll, I'll let Mike tell the story more, but like, I always think about, uh, you know, one of his stories he talks about when he worked in Congress about, you know, how, back here in garrison we have guys that are bitching about oh we want these boots or this watch or this knife and and you know people not having that perspective of like hey you know what there's there's people uh you know he told the story on here before about having people come up you know with with terminal cancer fighting to get bills passed and and you know stuff like that to to help fund research and and other programs for those people and i i know like have have you ever been involved with any of that as far as as far as what just any kind of like uh like that advocacy groups or you know people that are you know look working for legislation to get passed to help fund that stuff i know like like you mentioned the pack act uh that you know, I know that was a big one. And, uh, you know, I remember reading that cause I, I pay attention to John Stewart a lot and I know he was a big piece of, of getting that passed, but, uh, yeah, I just, you know, I always think about that's something I always think about whenever I hear guys bitch about stupid stuff. Uh, like I always remember Mike's story talking about that, like, Hey, there's people who are here you know, at the end of their life who are fighting to get this stuff done for, for other people. Um, it, yeah. I mean, it, it really puts things in perspective and, and I know like, yeah, I, 
I guess it just makes people hopefully think differently, like, you know, and hopefully, you know, they'll, they'll hear this and, and hear your, your points and, and the things that you're talking about. And yeah, I guess that's, that's my big hope is that we, we change somebody's perspective on this show. I, now I'm babbling. <laughs> just, no, all yeah. good. All good, yeah. brother. I love it. I love it, man. It gives me a, gives me time to think a little bit because like what you're talking about with John Stewart taking things up, yeah. you know, there, there, were, there was a lot of fluff in that bill and that's why it took so long. And of course, politics is politics. So there was, you know, just a waiting game on to see when it's going to pass, if it's going to pass and all that stuff. But, you know, we want um, one thing um, that, you know, we, we can always look back on was the, um, you know, the Green Beret that took it to the Supreme Court. And, you know, he, he really like his, his law firm did a great job. I think he's married to the, the lawyer that works with him at this point. Um, but he was misdiagnosed, uh, you know, at Bragg for a long enough time to which, you know, he became terminally ill and kept telling him and they kept pushing back. But that guy, um, he was able to you know, navigate through the political system to get it all the way to the top. and you know, gave a great little speech to, uh, you know, to Congress about it. You know, that's when people really started to open their eyes a little bit and say like, now this shit's real. Like, you know, you can't stop paying attention to it now because it's, you know, it's front page stuff for, for veterans to look at. And the fact that we do a lot of things that are going to hurt us that the government doesn't necessarily care about, or will just never address. So that was, you know, years ago when he went up to the, the Supreme court, but, you know, coming back, you know, sort of, uh, you know, sort of full circle. We we've got this bill that just passed that hopefully is going to going to help guys somewhere. I heard I think like 2023 sometime or maybe 2024 they're going to start, uh, you know, like giving payouts, like actually paying attention to people and saying no, we we need to, you know, help you more, uh, you know, with with your medical treatments, we need to help you more financially, whatever it is, like, we'll just pay you a million dollars. I have no idea, but just, you know, the exposure uh, to that and then the exposure that people that aren't in the military that don't, you know, know necessarily what's going on, that kind of shines a light on it, you know, and in this day and age, you know, people look at veterans as, you know, you know, in, in a different light, in a better light, you know, it's not like Vietnam where, you know, you come back and you're the devil. So, you know, we've got a lot of people that do care, like you were talking about John Stewart. I mean, he pushed hard for it, uh, real hard and made it, you know, his, uh, one of his priorities at the time and it paid off, man. I mean, they passed, uh, they, they passed the bill. Right. So, you know, we need more of that. We need more, more exposure. We need people to understand, you know, to, uh, to uh, you know, at, at a at a higher level, we need people to understand that, you know, the guys coming back, it's, it's, you know, similar to Vietnam, but not the same. Like you've got a lot of people that have, uh, you know, mental and emotional issues. And then you also have a lot of people that have physical issues and, you know, Congress, the government, I mean, it's like, we're, we're literally just, you know, a number and, until it starts to affect them. And like I said, comes to light. So I'm, I'm glad, I'm glad they were able to, you know, push it through, man. We just, we need a lot more of it at this point in time. 
there's probably, you know, a million different organizations, you know, small organizations that uh, nonprofits that are, you know, trying to help with these things. And if, uh, you know, if we're able at some point, you know, to get everybody on the same page and say like, you know, we need a different type of program when people redeploy, we need a, a different type of program pre-deployment, you know, to sort of, you know, like, help help guys understand that you might not be the same person when you come back or, you know, when you do come back, this is how we're going to help you. And uh, when you do come back, if you're fucked up, you know, and you're like me, you know, or you get a disease that's incurable and you're terminally ill. It's like, you know, you look at these things and people that just understand the severity of the situation, which I think a lot of times, you know, they're just incapable of understanding for who knows why, you know, multitude of reasons. They're not familiar with the military. They don't care, like whatever it is. But, you know, the, the more exposure we get and the more traction that, uh, you know, these issues get, uh, I, I do feel like it's going gonna, it's gonna to play out in a good way. But, you know, hopefully it doesn't take too long, man. You know, Agent Orange guys are just now starting to get paid, to my knowledge, and they, they were screwed, man. Like, you know, the government just kind of pushed them to the side and said, like, you know, whatever, it's not that big of a deal, but it, it was a big deal. You know, people were dying, man. I've, I'm in a few different, um, you know, Facebook groups with old timers, guys that, you know, have been around before Vietnam. And, you know, guys that were there or whatever, and, you know, talking to them, it's like they get these weird diseases, strange cancers, you know, all kinds of weird stuff. And they never really had that ability, you know, to reach out to somebody and say, like, you know, say it's the VA, you know, they, they just didn't have a good uh, avenue to approach to, to try and address their situations. You know what I'm saying? So... You know, nowadays we, we, we do have that. We have that capacity. We've got people who actually care that, you know, you jump on Twitter or whatever, you know, and it's like people are talking about it that weren't in the military that are pissed off, you know, about the fact that it's taking so long and that, you know, like troops aren't getting the support they need. And um, the more of that that we can get, the more people that can understand what we've been through, you know, on our side of the house. Uh, I feel like we're, you know, we'll be in a good or at least a better place. So, yeah, man, hopefully, hopefully it continues, man. They pass the PACT Act. There'll be another one, you know, 50 years down the line where they start actually paying like serious attention to it. But we're, we're in a good, good little spot. Thank John Stewart. Oh, thank John Stewart for that. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I think. You... Oh, oh, go ahead, Mike. No, I was, I was trying to remember. I thought I met the, your your fellow uh, SF guy that was up there pushing that legislation, and I want to say that it had to do with medical military medical malpractice. I think that's what he was he was championing, and I didn't hell I'd been in the Navy for twenty seven years at that time, and I was pretty ignorant about that whole thing that he was up there you know, walking the halls and, and beating on doors about, you know, I had no idea that and it just never dawned on me that I had no recourse for any medical malpractice while I was in the military, nor did my spouse, nor did my children. And so it basically gave them carte blanche and we were never held to, you know, any type of repercussions when they 
if they were negligent across the board, you know? And I think, and I try to look at it from two perspectives. I get it when we're doing battlefield medicine and you're just trying to keep folks alive and there are probably mistakes that may be made in that case. But when you look at the case like he had, that was complete misdiagnosis for a very long time based on complete incompetence on the medical staff's part. And there were no, there was no recourse for him, which I thought was completely jacked up. And I'm glad that he got that pushed through and they were, they were forced to make changes, but I can tell you, I believe that happened slightly after I, or a little bit after I left up there, but it definitely needed to happen. And I know there was a lot of resistance within Capitol Hill worried about what happens if we start opening that stuff up. But it's like, do you do, you know, you have to do the right thing. Bottom line, do the right thing. No matter what it costs, do the right thing. You know, so I'm glad to see that, you know, and I think, you know, like you were saying earlier, the folks that came back from World War II, the folks that came back from Korea, Vietnam, I mean, thanks to their help and the help of the folks that are currently going through a lot of things, we've moved the ball down the field significantly over the past, you know, couple of decades on the backs of some of those folks that went there before us. But you know, I think like you were saying, I mean, we really need to keep continuing to uh, maintain pressure on those folks that are up there to do the right things and, and uh, you know, take care of the folks that we ask to go do these certain things that we, that we go do. Yeah, for sure. Well, I mean, without that, you know, without the, the exposure, you know, it's like without, without people even paying attention to it. I mean, nowadays it seems like we are more, you know, as a society, as a nation, people are, are, are looking at veterans in a different light and saying like, no, nah, man, we got to take care of these guys. So him going up there, he, uh, I'm trying to remember his name. It's like Joe Solaski or something. can't remember. Um, but yeah, I mean, guys like him that push back seriously misdiagnosed, you know, like constantly asking for help and not getting it. And then like, you know, in the end he was right. I was, I was misdiagnosed for probably, you know, maybe, maybe max like four or five months, you know, it seemed like they were trying to do a good job and, and go through the, you know, the, the whole process correctly, uh, and escalated, but for, for him, it was different, you know, like I'm proud uh, that, you know, that guy, I'm, I'm very happy that he was able to do that. I actually got with his law firm at, at one point. I was going to say, I, I know somebody who was in that same boat, uh, same thing for four years, uh, Navy guy that I used to work with at the training unit. And, um, yeah same thing he he you know they said oh you know it's ibs or whatever and and then they uh, same situation except it was four years and then he found out yeah uh, uh, it makes me mad that that you know for the longest time there was really no recourse uh recourse for that because it's yeah it, it just pisses me off um it's just like anything, you know, you get the, the, like your experience with the VA. Sometimes you get the JV team and sometimes you get the all-star team and it's almost a crapshoot, you know, when you go in for your appointment and, you know, some folks actually are doing that job because they genuinely give a shit. And some folks are actually just trying to pay off student loans because they, they don't have anywhere else to go. And that's sadly, I mean, just like there's, there's shitty Navy UD techs. There's, there's shitty green berets out there. That's we, we, we have guys that make it through selection. We have guys that make it through and, and graduate the courses, you know, it is what it is, but 
and, and it's and it reflects on you know the, the same thing with the medical corps i've met great folks and i've had some really 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 shitty experiences but uh you know it's it's upon us as like the per se the customer in this whole thing to be able to have the wherewithal to go you know what like you're saying you know you got to keep pushing if you don't if you think something's wrong you keep pushing because you never know your life might depend on it. Absolutely. hundred percent, man. Like I tell, I tell every, every teammate, you know, like it doesn't matter if you're, you know, 38 years old, dude, like tell them that you're having some, some gastro problems, get a colonoscopy, you know, like it's a simple procedure, you know, it kind of sucks, whatever. But I mean, if you can catch it early, then, then do it because there's a lot of people like me who caught it too late. So yeah, man, it's, uh, it's definitely, man, it's kind of a crapshoot with the VA, but you know, it can be, but, uh, you know, figuring out how to get a good support system, you know, that can help you if you're not able to help yourself. And even if you are just that support system to help backside, it's, it's, it's extremely important, man. And we, there's a lot of tools nowadays that you can use to do that. So I think we have what, what at least, you know, some or a lot of what we need to, you know, to make it happen. Uh, you know, he, he was misdiagnosed, uh, the guy that took it up to the Supreme court. And I think that kind of changed the game for, uh, military doctors, because I believe after that we were able to sue doctors, uh, military doctors. Right. Isn't that the, the case? That was a principle of his legislation. Yes. Cause there was, there was previous legislation. I want to say it was back around the Vietnam era, but I, I could be wrong. So I'm often wrong, but, um, that there was legislation there that basically said you, you cannot you cannot sue military medicine regardless and his his uh effort was to champion to get either uh something written to to get rid of that or something to get written to hold them you know accountable for for you know the the care that they provide because that, that was there was like a blanket and i the the tip of it's on the you know the back of my mind where the that that actual act or that law that was passed that talks about Robinson comes to mind, but that's not it. I know that's not it, but um, that, that, that spoke specifically that military members, families cannot sue military medicine, just basically gave them extreme protection for all, you know, accountability and also proficiency in the, in the craft that they're so-called practicing. So yeah, it was, you know, like you're saying, man, that, that was a, that was a, uh, you know, from a bureaucratic political um, perspective, the win that that guy was able to get is probably overlooked way too much from the military community. And they will probably, they may never know exactly what that guy and the people that helped him out uh, did to, uh, to help us, you know, the, the, the current and future folks that will serve in the military to help, to help them get better care and, and to be, you know, to be able to take, you know, action in the event that they don't get it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if, if as a doctor, you know, if, if there's no repercussions for, you know, for messing up, I, I just feel like that's an incentive to be lazy and, you know, not necessarily care quite as much because if it's your license, you're going to pay more attention to it. Yeah. And, um, you know, like after that, I mean, I, I had conversations with my, my oncologist about this, you know, because for a while there, I thought, 
you know, it was his fault, you know, like he killed me, he told me to continue treatment. And then, you know, and then I died. And, you know, like that set the stage for such a large amount of chaos that didn't just change my life, but everybody's life around me for the worst. And, um, you know, looking at that, it's like, you know, do I sue this guy? Like, do I take him, you know, to court and say, like, I, I was telling him I was having problems. Like, what, what do I do? But the conversations that him and I had about that, you know, they, they, they were good. Um, but he said the same thing. Like, I mean, it, it you know, it, it does increase the amount of incentive to really do your job and do it right and care about it. So it's not a nine to five, you know, it's I'm doing this because I, I want to, I, I enjoy it and uh, I need to take care of these people, you know, all these screwed up dudes running around with cancer and shit. So, yeah, man, I don't know the, like, on a, it, it, it can, it can be, I don't know, hopefully, you know, it can be, uh, you know, fixed, fixed to the point where we're all able to be happy. I don't know, including doctors, because now, now you can sue their ass. Those motherfuckers. Sorry. <laughs> but, um, yeah, man, you never know. You go to the VA and the VA has like, you know, it's like your yearly checkup. They don't give a shit. I mean, you go in there, you get your lab work, you talk to them for 10 minutes and it's like that you get, I mean, it's obvious. They're like, I just want to go to lunch. I don't care. But, you know, you go to other, other places like, you know, uh, Bamsi, you sit down with your doctor and have good heart to heart conversation with them about stuff. And, you know, I mean, like, kind uh, of, uh, like, like they depend on your business. That's a yeah. <laughs> what a novel concept. Yeah. yeah. Or you can get the guy that I had when I went out to Norfolk for the first time outside of military <laughs> medicine. The guy wasn't uh, very tuned into. Obviously, he didn't because uh, I went there with basically a grocery bag of prescriptions that were, you know, prescribed to me from going to NICO and going to Trip Spirit and stuff like that. And so I, I take my retirement physical. I give it to the nurse. I talk her through all the meds. I talk her through my previous occupation and all that kind of shit. And then uh, the doctor finally comes in and he's like, yeah, you know, I, I just don't understand why you're on all these medications. And I was like, well, I used to be, uh, you know, the, the on the bomb squad in the Navy because he sure as hell wouldn't have understood EOD. So see, I, you know, I was on the bomb squad for about 20 years. Oh, okay. Well, you know, look at all the stuff you're, you're on. I, I think, I think if you just went on a vegan diet, all that shit would go away and you wouldn't have to take any of these meds. And I was like, man, are, are you, are you messing with me? Are you joking? No, he was dead serious that I needed to go on a vegan diet to get rid of all my migraines, to get rid of all this other stuff that was going on that I take these. And I was like, Hey man, you know, I, I don't really want to, you know, create this, you know, initial adversarial visit here, but uh, you know, I arguably went to some of the best neurologists that, get daily case studies of folks dealing with what I deal with that were in our occupations that are in, you know, NICO and up at Walter Reed down all these other intrepid spirits that are seeing these symptoms and, and these types of things come in on a day-to-day -day basis. And I kind of find your assessment of me going on a vegan diet as my cure-all for everything. I think you're full of shit. So that was the last time I saw that guy needless to say, but um, yeah, they're, they're, like I said, man, it's just like we talk about, you know, guys going to different VSOs to take care of VA claim and stuff. If they're full of crap and they're not doing what they're supposed to do, find somebody else, fire them. 
you know, basically fire them and go have have the wherewithal to just like, you know, it takes a certain amount of courage to jump out of planes. It takes a certain amount of courage to do different things. Have the courage to go, I think you're full of shit and I'm going to go find a different opinion on this. Because like we said earlier, man, it, it could be, it could make a major difference on, on your next outcome. Absolutely. Just to get the right people. Well, I think that's a concept that Absolutely. people in the military aren't familiar with, the fact that you can fire somebody. Right? That you yeah, can actually yeah. fire, fire them, not like, hey, you're not allowed to do the job you were doing anymore. But, well, Derek, I, I mean, I appreciate you, you hopping on here with us, but I wanted to ask you, you know, what, what, what wisdom do you want to impart people with um, or, or, you know, any additional perspective that you want to lend to this conversation? Um, you know, because I... Yeah, I mean, I, I know like you, you've had a ton of experience going through this and, and you know, I've learned a lot. Uh, so hopefully I, you know, I've, I've been kind of writing some stuff down here on my phone that I want to go look up uh, and, and share with some other people. But, you know, anything that we haven't hit yet that you still wanted to, to touch on. Just be, be your own advocate. I mean, if, uh, if you do that, then you'll be able to find a good support system to rely on to help you and then work with that support system. But without, without being your own advocate, without, you know, just saying yes with the doctor for a vegan diet, you know, like, uh, I mean, did you, you try you that by the these way? Things. You didn't try that, did you? I, I, I failed miserably. I, I did eat my <laughs> green beans that night. That was it. <laughs> I wouldn't yeah, I, I would never do that shit, man. Yeah. Fucking A, man. <laughs> immediately, immediately. But um, just to piss that guy off, I eat it in front of him. But yeah. um, yeah, no, man. Like even if even if it takes all of your remaining energy, which you know was kind of my case, like, you know, advocate for yourself, number one. And number two, find a good support system. Because, you know, you're talking about the VSO and stuff. I mean, we've got different uh, organizations within the SF community that we can rely on. So things like the, I think it's the Special Forces Association, the Green Beret Foundation, you know, stuff like that. You can utilize because they do want to help. So if you find that good network of people that you can sort of prop up on and uh, just understand that, you know, you, you are the patient and you have control of the situation if you want to then take advantage of it, you know, like advocate for yourself, do your research, understand that, you know, they might not always be as uh, dedicated uh, to your survival as you. So you might have to branch out and start, you know, doing your own research and find ways to make things happen, man. You know, that's the, that's the biggest thing that I've learned in the past, you know, three years is the fact that if you sit on it and, you know, you think that things are going to get better just because, you know, one guy said so, and you were, you know, were kind of skeptical about the decisions that 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 person was making, that doctor was making, that VSO rep was making, whatever. You could end up in a really bad place, you know. So, you know, advocate for yourself, find a good support network, and then roll with it, and understand that, you know, without that, it's going to be a lot more difficult. Couldn't agree more. Amen to that, man. I would like to, if you're up for it, um, you know, like just to talk a little bit more about your story, you know, when, uh, when you talk about, or we, we talk about how we ended up where we're at 
you know, um, like I, Trevor and I both grew up in West Virginia. We, we grew up about a decade apart, but, you know, I found myself in, in college with pretty much no direction. And I had two, fortunately I had both grandfathers were World War II vets. And one of them told me, you know, if you don't have any direction, you need to join the military. So, you know, he said, join the Navy because there's going to be uh, hot, three hot meals and a roof over your head every night, which I used to on patrols at night or on the, on DAs and the target, I would always, you know, stop and look up at the stars and, and laugh as I ate my power bar on the way to the, on the insert. So, or even on the way out. So I really appreciated his sage advice that I didn't quite listen to enough, but anyway, you know, how, how the, you know, then I eventually I started as an electronics technician and frankly, I got bored of shit as that with that. And then um, I got into EOD, I actually check into EOD school on day 9-11 happened. So, you know, what we all have different, you know, paths that we ended up going our certain ways, but I think it's always unique to find out each, you know, your story as far as how you, you know, where'd you grow up at? How the hell did you end up in the military? You know, it's, it's, you know, I think it's such a great thing to capture, especially for someone like you that went to do things that you did. Yeah, man. Yeah. I'm here. Um, you know, I'm, I'm in hospice right now, so it's an in-home hospice program. So never would have expected living with my mom at 38 years old. Uh, but I'm, you know, not capable of doing quite a bit of things, including walking and stuff. So I'm, uh, I'm at home all the time and I'm usually pretty doped up, but I, I've got my lucid moments like right now where I can, I can definitely, man, I can talk. I'm here. So how did you end up? What, what got you down to the recruiter's office? You know, when, when you uh, join, I know the, you know, the Iraq and Afghanistan wars were both going on pretty heavily at that time. When you came in, I think you said 2008, because that's when Trevor and I got back from our, uh, NSW deployment in April was it April 2008, I think somewhere yeah, around there, something like that. April or May. So yeah. And the surge was going on, I think in Iraq about that time. So, you know, what was your, uh, you know, what was, I guess, you know, what was your calling to go into the military and then, you know, what made you go into, you know, the, the SF community? Uh, meth, methamphetamine. That was, <laughs> I was, I, I was yeah now i was uh you know from like 18 to 23 you know because i think i joined when i was 23 but uh, you know these few period you know periods of time i was i was doing a lot of drugs um doing a lot of a lot of bad things hanging around you know bad people and stuff and you know it's just got to the point man like where I'd, i kind of looked at myself and i'm like i'm not an idiot man like why are you doing this and i kept seeing on on tv man like you know another soldier died they had like you know death counts on all over the news you know like there's how many people have died today you know and it was just it was really hard to see that knowing that you know i could do more i could do something and instead of sitting here and you know doing drugs all day partying you know going out with you know molly and you know hit, hit the town do a bunch of cocaine like all, all of these things compiled to the point at which i said you know that shit needs to end i need to switch my life up so i just cold turkeyed everything went to went to a recruiter and you know he uh he said you're probably you're probably gonna hate it uh you're, you know you're slightly colorblind so you can't be infantry 
you have to find some other profession like radio operator, which is what I ended up doing. And, you know, said, whatever, fuck it, man. Like, just throw me in and uh, went to MEPS and uh, got all the stuff done. Ended up going to basic and um, station in Hawaii, which was awesome. It was amazing and a great experience. But uh, immediately, like two weeks after touching ground, I deployed to Iraq for a year and when uh when i was on our our little camp so i was lucky enough to not be on a big fob we were about maybe 15 miles away from uh i don't remember the name of the the big installation that they had in uh iraq but no it was um damn man i always forget it man there was like three main big ass fobs and we were we were pretty close to one, one of them so we had you know we had a good uh you know, good, good amount of support from them usually, but on our, our little camp that we had, there were, uh, there was an SF team. It was actually, I think the first team was first group when they switched out, it was seventh group. And I remember taking radios and stuff over there, uh, to these guys to, to help them out and started talking to one of them. And he's like, bro, just start, start training, man. Like go to selection. You seem like you could, you know, you, you could probably do it and you don't seem like a dumbass. So like SF might be a good, good path and trained for almost an entire almost an entire year in iraq and as soon as i got back kept training went through selection um you know made it and and that was it man like that was full blast after that like go through the q course have a great time you know doing that and then hit group and you know just go out and uh do hood rat stuff with my friends you know what i mean that sounds like a a good name for a book from meth to sf yeah man. <laughs> I'm, I'm i'm gonna write that i'm gonna trademark that you should um yeah i mean it's just kind of, it, it it does it does show you that i mean like I, I was you know i was not in a good place man and then you know just something as, as simple as seeing you know death counts on tv you know can really you know switch your gears up a little bit to the point at which you're you know, like you're now invested, you know, you're now emotionally connected to a situation that, you know, is affecting you that, you know, you could be a part of and, and yeah, just run with it. And I was doing a lot of bad stuff before that. And I, you know, I talked to my, my family quite a bit about it, you know, my sister and my nephew, you know, explained some of these, these things to him. He's a little bit younger, but, you know, explained to him, like, you know, I was, I was not good. And then as soon as I, you know, stepped foot in the door uh, in basic training, I understood, you know, I understood that I was on the right path doing the right thing and, you know, just needed to keep going with it. So never stop. They said, uh, said I couldn't be an infantryman because I was, I was colorblind. I was red deficient. So I wouldn't be able to read a map at night with a red light. And, uh, you know, definitely like I went through all of the, um, all of the uh you know the screenings and stuff uh, before you go you know and actually get and get your packet for sf and selection and and i went through all that and passed every test that they had uh, including the colorblind test and uh yeah right there man game on you know sounds like they got it wrong again yeah (laughs) they were they gave me three choices man it was chaplain's assistant so hell no mortuary science which like no hell hell fucking no and then uh radio operator and when i asked the guy i'm like what does a radio operator do 
he explained it like it was, you know, some Hollywood movies, like, oh, you're going to be running around the radio and you're going to be shooting everything and you're going to be attached to like all these cool units and do all this cool shit. And then I hit ground in Hawaii and it's like all these fat, lazy like people that <laughs> are, are in the combo shop. And uh, they're just like, I was so disappointed. I'm like, man, I thought it would be like, you know, running and gunning, man. But, um, you know, that, that, that right there actually gave me a lot of fuel, you know, to get out of that place. It's, it's kind of like how I see some people, uh, like on LinkedIn, how they, you know, they try to describe their job or they were, you know, they, whatever they were like, I was an uh, assistant executive assistant or whatever, like, dude, shut the hell up. You were the admin guy for like, yeah. Uh, yeah. Stop, stop, stop churching it up, man. It wasn't that, yeah. wasn't that crazy, bro. But <laughs> yeah. yeah, no, it, it was a wild ride. And, uh, you know, I, I still, you know, talk to a few of my friends that, that I am from my previous life and, they, they have, most of them have switched gears and, and switched it up a little bit so that they're in a better place. But I mean, it's, it, it's pretty amazing to, you know, to, to, to see that you can go from, you know, being a complete piece of shit, uh, non-productive, like do nothing for society to, you know, making it close to the top, you know, you get into SF and it's like, you know, the world is your oyster at that point, man. Like you're a badass now, I guess, and go do badass stuff. I don't know, man. I yeah. don't know. I try to tell that. I try to tell that to my nephew, and you know, I don't. I don't sway him any direction. I'm not telling him to join the military and none of that. But you know, I, I do explain to him a lot of things about my 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 previous life and how it, I was a different person then. So it's 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 kind of you know it's cool to see that you know it's it's cool like for me personally like inside I just kind of. You know, I'm glad I'm glad that I did it and I'm proud that I was able to get it done and get moved past those things. The military will will definitely switch you up. Like you'll you go through basic training and the first time they start screaming at you, you're like, what the fuck is happening? So that was a, a different culture shock, a different type of shock. But I mean, it, it, it paid off, man. It really did. And I'm glad that, that I did it. And even though you know, now I'm on my, my last leg, you know, it's like, even, even with that, I'm still not disappointed in any of the decisions I made to do any of the stuff that I've done. And that's, uh, you know, that's something a lot of people might not be able to say in their life. So I'm, I'm in a good place, man. I'm in a good place. Yeah. I think that's you, man, you make an outstanding point because I've, you know, where Trevor and I grew up in West Virginia and I see people that never leave the town that they were born in and raised in. And, you know, we were all fortunate enough to go out and experience stuff. I remember my grandfather telling me, you know, he, he was in the, he was in the Navy during World War II and got to do a lot of other things, small business owner, did a lot of big game hunting in Africa and owned, you know, did all kinds of stuff. I mean, he was just a go-getter type of guy, you know, he was like, yeah, you know, if, if I die tomorrow, I've done more than I ever thought I'd do. And I think, you know, a lot of the folks that we work with and we're fortunate enough to be around, that's a way a lot of us lived our lives. And I, you know, and it, you know, it's just, you go home and you see that and you're like, man, you guys have no idea what you're missing out on. And there's no, you know, you, you know, arguably you get one shot at it. So you got to make the, the most of it. And I think your story with regards to how you got to even going in the army, man, that that's phenomenal, let alone excelling at, you know, and getting into SF and completing the course. 
I mean, th there's not too many people that can tell that story. A lot of mess. You just got to do a lot of mess. But, <laughs> yeah. That's what no, I was. I, I, I was usually able to control it pretty well, but yeah, now, man, it's, it, man, when you have to like, I'll tell you this, like I, I showed up to MEPS uh, probably after like a three day bender and um, we had been drinking all night. I, I hadn't slept or anything. I show up to MEPS like the very end where they put you on the bus and stuff. And uh, this dude walks up and he's like, you've been drinking? And I'm like, nope. He's like, you smell like fucking alcohol. And I'm like, I don't know what to tell you. He's like, get over here. And he's one of the, you know, the dudes that works there. And he started giving me shit. And I, I pulled the Listerine strips out of my pocket. And I forgot that I even had them in there. And I'm like, no, it's Listerine strips. And, uh, yeah, he kind of gave me that smirk and like, you asshole. And he's like, get up, get on the bus. All right. <laughs> I literally, man, like from one step, I went from, you know, being a, a fucking mess dude to, you know, jumping in and saying, fuck it, I'm going to go put a green beret on. But yeah, these yeah, are, man. these are meth Listerine, meth scented Listerine strips. Yeah. yeah. Don't get, don't give these to your kids on Halloween. That's I used to say is. that. I always thought like the best guys for those types of jobs were the guys that were, you know, borderline criminal mentality. <laughs> yeah, hundred percent, man. To, to really think outside the box, you can't be. Uh, you can't. You know. You can't be one hundred. One hundred percent. You gotta have. You gotta have a little bit of dirt. You know what I mean? Like not like domestic violence dirt, but like yeah. you know, you gotta have. Gotta have some experience, bit, man. Right? It's called character. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, that's the perfect way. Yeah. yeah. I couldn't think of a better yeah. way to, to phrase that. But well, fellas, I gotta I gotta run. I got another call here. But uh Derek, man, I, I gotta tell you, I appreciate you you taking the time to come on here. And I'm glad we we're uh, it took us a couple of tries, but I'm glad we were able to get you on here and, and share your experience. Well, I appreciate the time. I appreciate your time and, and the ability to just talk, man. So anytime you uh, you guys need me back or want me back or whatever, man, hit me up and we'll we'll do it again. Absolutely. Let us know if there's any way we can help you, man. Stay in touch. Cool. Absolutely, man. Thank you. All right. Thanks a lot. Take care. Yeah, you get you take too. care, buddy. All right. Thank you for listening to the Get to Vet podcast. Make sure you subscribe to our channel and follow us on LinkedIn. If you'd like to come on the show. Email us at Mike or Trevor at gettovet.net. That's get the number two vet.net and let us help you get to vet.